I was going to say, amen, let's pass the plate. <laughs> You've now seen it all together. Now, how much of it you'll remember? Now, we're going to pick it apart over the next uh, four, five, six weeks. Somebody, uh, I told them I was preaching on Ruth, they said, well, how many weeks are you going to do a series on that? I said, I think I got seven messages. And they said, it's only four chapters long. And I said, well, you need to squeeze a lot of stuff out of good, good material. Well, we're going to take a look at the first part of it, really only the first couple of verses today. And the message title, message title today is very simply, what do you do when hard times come? Because all of us are going to experience hard time sooner or later. Now, it's been written that when hard times come, you either become a student or you become a victim. For example, a victim says, why does this always happen to me? Whereas a student would say, I wonder what I could possibly learn from this. A victim might say, I'm always being treated unfairly by everybody. But a student says, I just thank God that he doesn't treat me the way I deserve. A victim tries to get even with the people who hurt him. Whereas a student seeks to serve other people in the midst of their difficulty. A victim uh, kind of believes that the game of life is somehow stacked against them. Whereas a student believes God is always at work, even in the midst of the worst things that could be happening around them. Now, I think the whole point, if I'm, I'm going to steal a little bit from Tim and John, is simply this. Uh, it's pretty clear. We rarely control what happens to us. Lots of stuff just goes on and we're just like, whoa, how'd that happen? But we can always choose how we're going to respond to whatever happens in our lives. And sometimes we kind of make the wrong choice and we, we respond negatively and we pay the price for it, uh, for our mistake. But often we don't learn the right lessons until we can kind of look back and say, oh, there was God in that situation. Here was God all along the way. It brought me out of what seemed like a horrible place into a pretty good place. Now, something like that happens, we saw, to this woman by the name of Naomi. Uh, and her story is this whole Old Testament book of Ruth. It's a love story that, as you've seen, starts with misery, ends with joy. Uh, it's got all kinds of stuff in it. It's got anxiety in it. It's got fear in it. It's got love in it. It's got commitment in it. It inflames the imagination. It's a love story. Uh, it kind of soothes the soul. It begins with despair and ends with delight. That's that little book, little book, four chapters, uh, only 85 verses. It covers a wide range of human emotions. I mean, we could talk about these human emotions every week, you know, starting with heartache. Then it moves into intrigue and then into romance and finally into happiness. It's kind of like one of those Hallmark Christmas movies that my wife watches. Or maybe some of you watch those too. Got everything in there. Now, along the way, what I wrote in my notes was, <laughs> we discover God behind the scene. Except I didn't spell it S-C-E-N-E, I spelled it S-E-E-N. It's God behind the scene. It's what God sees in the whole uh, range of emotions here. And uh, it works in and through, and sometimes in spite of how we mess things up, in order to get it right. I'm going to read to you the first five verses now. I think they're probably on the screen. Ruth 1, 1 to 5. Here's the setting for today. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and the man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. 
The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. That ought to ring a few bells if you're familiar with Old Testament scripture right there. Some of you are going, oh, Micah, Micah, Micah. Now you're going, what's he talking about? Well, we'll get to that. (laughs) They went into the country of Moab and stayed there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years and both Malan and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, from this story, I think there are three uh, pretty contemporary lessons that kind of help us, hopefully, as we also deal with uh, the hard times of life. And I'm sure we could probably start all the way here, David Galloway and, 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 and Stephanie, and say, have you ever gone through a hard time in life? And I think we'd all go, yeah, more than one, <laughs> a whole bunch of them. Well, here's the first point I want to make about this, and it's this, that hard times may happen at any time. They rarely ever happen according to your schedule, by the way. Uh, Ruth opens with a note that kind of anchors this whole story to a time and a space. It said that during the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. Now, this means the story took place sometime after Joshua died and somewhere before Saul becomes the first king of Israel. So we got that little time span in there. Now, when you go back and you read the book of Judges, you ought to go back and read it sometime. uh, You might be tempted to say, man, this is really one godless period of time in God's history. But that would not be entirely correct. Uh, You should think of it as a time when, as Judges, somewhere in chapter 21, says everybody did what was right in their own sight. Uh, Well, it sounds like 2023 sometimes. Everybody's doing what they think is right in their own sight. But see, as long as the judges were in office, as long as the judges ruled, the people served the Lord. But the moment, really the moment a judge died or was killed, the Jews immediately flipped back and turned to idolatry. It was a recurring cycle of of obedience and then disobedience and then judgment and then suffering and then desperation and returning to the Lord. Now, I've taught the book of Judges in prison. And when I, I do it down there, I just talk about the 12 cycles of sin. And the 12 cycles of sin go the exact same way that it often goes in your life and in my life. And it's called this sin, judgment, and grace. You goof it up. You screw it up. You sin. And there comes the hammer comes. You, you find some judgment in that. But then at the end comes the grace of God. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, uh, Moses warned the people that if they refused to obey God, God would curse the land. So there's a little bit of prediction here. He said, the Lord will do what? Turn the rain of your land into falling dust. It will descend on you from the sky until you are destroyed. So there's a time period where the people have turned away and God says, okay, I told you, I can turn off the rain for a while. This means that this famine in the promised land didn't just happen. It's already talked about in Deuteronomy. It was far more than some sort of natural disaster uh, God used this famine to send a message to his people. Now, that kind of p- 
prompts a question, a question that I've heard several times in my life as a pastor, and the question is, do you think God still speaks to us today, or do you think that God can speak to us today? And I, I always say, I kind of laugh a little bit, but I, I'll say, you don't really have to worry about that. Uh, God's got your number on speed dial. <laughs> and when he calls, guess what? You can't uh, put him on call waiting. That call is going to go through one way or the other. God knows how to get through to us at any time, any place. But so that, that is the very first part. Hard times uh, are going to happen at any time. Here's the second point I want to make. Hard times force us to make hard choices. See, the land around Bethlehem was great land. Uh, some of the most fertile land you could find in all of Palestine, all of the promised land. Now, Elimelech obviously probably worked pretty hard, good farmer, probably harvested enough to take care of his family every year. But what do you do when it stops raining? What do you do when the famine hits? Well, for Elimelech, Elimelech the answer was, was pretty simple. I'm just going to pack my family up and we're going to move to Moab because Moab also had good soil and it was raining in Moab. And if the famine had not hit that region, perhaps he would have stayed a few more months where he belonged. But he said, no, I'm going to move. Now, some of you, maybe your ears pricked up when you heard the scripture reading. Maybe even when you saw the little video before, uh, it says that uh, Elimelech was an Ephrathite. Does that ring any bells for anybody? Ephrathite? Well, Ephrathah is the old name for, anybody want to shout it out? Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Oh, that triggers a bell here, doesn't it? It may be that he actually came from a rather distinguished family. He, he came from Bethlehem. I wonder who else came from Bethlehem. I'll have to think about that one. But he had a family, had a long history in that area. Now, that wouldn't guarantee that he had money, but it does suggest something about his background. He was well, we what today we might call a Christian, but he was somebody who was following uh, the Lord. Now, it appears from the text that things worked out for a while. Evidently, they settled in what was called the fields of Moab. They found plenty to eat. The famine of, of Bethlehem was now a, uh, a distant memory. But, as they say, Elimelech dies. <clears throat> and he leaves behind his widow, Naomi, and two boys without a dad. Now, eventually, we heard in the story before, these two boys uh, marry Moabite, underline that word, Moabite women, Orpha. I'm going to get it right all the time because when I've gone through it, I've said Oprah any number of times when I was going through it in my own mind, but Orpha and Ruth. But then the two boys die and are buried in Moab, and suddenly the short time in Moab has become 10 years. Verse 1 that I read to you before notes that Elimelech intended to emigrate to Moab for a while. He only planned to go for a while, meaning he never really intended to leave Judah, God's land, permanently. It was a temporary move into foreign territory. You ever done that? Moved out of God's territory temporarily, knowing that you could always go back and suddenly 10 years passed. Maybe that's happened to you. 
But see, God was very, very, very underlined, every very clear that the Israelites were to have absolutely nothing to do with who? Moabites. Moabites. Whoa. Is that true? Well, let me read to you Deuteronomy 23, verses 3 and 6. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the Lord's assembly. None of their descendants, even to the 10th generation, may ever enter the Lord's assembly. Never pursue their welfare or prosperity as long as you live. Now, I suspect that Elimelech didn't intend to leave the Lord by moving to Moab, but I got to tell you, it was kind of a dumb decision on his part. And don't write that down as part of the gospel. I just think it was a pretty dumb decision to leave the promised land to go back to Moab. Now, you've got to ask yourself, you've got to dig a little bit deeper, uh, what's the deal with these Moabites? Well, these were ancient enemies of Israel. Uh, Moab, where did they all come into play? You remember the story of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah? When Lot chose to live in Sodom and Gomorrah, and then suddenly God rains down fire, and so well, maybe his wife turns into a, a pillar of salt. But then Lot and his two daughters go hide in a cave, and they suddenly realize life is over for us because we don't have any husbands, so let's get our dad drunk and sleep with him. That's where the Moabites came from, the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. So let's look back at Elimelech here. He was leaving the land of blessing to live among the pagans on the east side of the Dead Sea. He and his family would be exposed to the Moabite religion for at least 10 years with its degrading idol worship and its gross sexual perversions. Moved it out of good land into that place. Now, I kind of think that Elimelech might have understood the risk, but he only thought this would be a temporary journey into the Badlands uh, and it wouldn't hurt his family too much. But friends, there, there's something here to remember, and that's that good motives can't cancel the impact of a bad decision. See, Elimelech thought he'd go to Moab, stay until the famine passes, then go back home. But did you see on the screen before? There were three graves. Him and his two sons. His wrong decision meant that he never got back to Bethlehem. Here's the third point I want to make, and it's this. Hard times prepare us for a great work of grace. Maybe you've experienced that. You had hard times, and God bailed you out. So let me ask you this question. Who raised up the 12 judges? Well, God did. Who sent the famine? God did. He actually predicted it. Uh, who gave them safe passage to Moab? God. Who decreed that the three men in the family would die? God did. Now, as far as we, we know, God never speaks to Elimelech, uh, yet he's the unseen hand that seems to be moving behind the scenes all the time. See, whatever else you can say about your life or whatever else I can say about my life, don't ever forget that God oversees the tiniest details in your life. Don't just think he's following you along on mountaintops. He's down in the valleys with you as well. Nothing escapes God's notice in your life. And even some of the most unlikely events that are laying out there that are waiting for you in history. 
See, when the family left Bethlehem, uh, there were three men and one woman, Elimelech, uh, Naomi, uh, Malan, and Chilion. Now, Naomi has buried three guys in Moab when she discusses their situation with her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. Uh, Naomi declares, God has turned his hand against me. You ever been in that situation, in that deep of weeds where you say, God, you're against me. You, what a hateful, vengeful God you are. Well, we're not going to get to that until next week. That's verse 13. But it's here, friends, where we need to ask, in what sense was Naomi prepared for a great work of grace? It's an interesting question. Has God finally gotten you down so low that the only way you could go is back up? Down and dirty, just where God wants us. See, our text for today ends, Naomi's still in Moab. She's still a long way from home, figuratively and spiritually. Uh, She's coping with the loss of her husband. She's probably still mourning the loss of her two boys. Uh, She isn't where she should be, uh, shouldn't be. She's in a pagan land, separated from God's people, uh, facing the consequences of her husband's unwise decision. She's an older woman, older widow, who's probably not going to have any more children. And she's in the company of two younger widows. This was not the right place for her to be in any sense of your imagination. This is where if I were open up the Bible the first time and I'm reading through it and I get through these first number of verses, I would have written right across those first five verses, hopeless. I mean, this gal is in deep, deep weeds. Naomi is stuck in Moab, a widow without any more kids, young widows at her side. And on top of that, the two young widows are what? Moabites. Moabites. If I'm Naomi, um, I'd say, man, I got no future. And neither do these two girls if they stay with me. I can't take two Moabite women back to Bethlehem. Now, part of our problem in reading this story, and I thought about this, anytime you take a book of the Bible, the problem with doing a series of messages in Ruth is you probably all know how the story turns out. Oh, Barry, when are you going to get over the bad stuff? Let's move to the good stuff where David comes in the line, where Jesus pops up in the genealogy. Well, you've got to start somewhere to see where God starts in the problems we have and how God brings us out. See, we sometimes face the same issue when we we look at the other Bible stories. I thought about this. Uh, Let's take Joseph, for example. Remember good old Joseph in the the Old Testament? How much did Joseph know about the end of his story when his brothers threw him down in a pit in Genesis 37? Well, the answer is he didn't know squat. (laughs) All he knew is they threw him in a hole. Well, ask the same question when he's hauled out of the hole and carted off by the Midianites, who then sold him into slavery to a guy by the name of Potiphar. I mean, how much did he know about the future at that point? And then when Potiphar's wife uh, falsely accused him of rape, or or when Potiphar then uh, throws him in jail, or when that uh, cupbearer promised to remember him when he got out of prison and forgot all about Joseph, 
you know, what do you think? Did Joseph say, well, someday I'm going to be second command in Egypt. I doubt it. Now, a lot of people would like to say, well, Joseph had bad problems, but I read, I read to the end of the story. And in Genesis 50, verse 20, he said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Well, yeah. But did he know that as he went through all of that nonsense? Not at all. Joseph had no advanced knowledge that he, a Hebrew slave, would become second in command of Egypt. When I've been asked, does God have a blueprint for my life? <laughs> Again, I have to kind of laugh and I kind of go, well, yeah, but there's only one copy and it's locked up on the second floor of the administration building in heaven and I don't have a key. And you can't get a copy. And yet, all the way through this, Naomi still believes in God. She's in a foreign land, but she still believes. But she's cut off from her people. If she is bitter at the Lord, at least she hasn't turned away. And I think it's a good thing for us to remember. Have you ever been bitter against the Lord? A little bit upset, a little bit ticked off with him? But you didn't say, I'm done with you. Do you know people who have been pretty ticked off with God and actually did turn away and said the heck with you and walked away? Yeah. What a blessing, though, that we still say, well, God is still God. Now, a lot of people would say uh, she got what was coming to her. Well, if we say that, we, we only reveal how little we really understand God's heart. I mean, God is rich in grace. That's scattered throughout Scripture. And his pockets are deep and full of mercy. See, God has not given up on Naomi in this story the same way I would tell you. What, okay, what you've ever been through, what you're going through right now, God is not giving up on you. No matter what you may think from time to time. He's got plans in your life that are out there that are just waiting to unfold. I mean, I think about this sometimes. I think about the times I've tried to retire. You know, when Nancy knows when I'm, uh, you know, first, first Lutheran in Texarkana, okay. Uh, five and a half years, I thought enough was enough. It didn't take me very long before I'm serving another church in Mineral Wells, Texas. And I thought, well, then enough was enough. And moved to Branson. And then I served Redeemer in Springfield and Redeemer in Nixon and First Lutheran in Branson until I finally said, enough is enough. And then I ran into that clown there at Hollister Coffee Company. And we started talking. And the next thing you know, we got Anthony, then we got Joel, and we're doing the daily grind in the coffee shop on Saturday nights. And it kind of got to the point where it might be enough is enough. And Mark says, would you be interested in planning a mission someplace out in Hollister? And I said, well, only if I can take these other three clowns with me. And uh, here we are. Here we are today. We left one clown over at the main circus at praise and worship. And I'm sure he'll listen to the message later and call me on calling him a clown. But, uh, yeah, we just sometimes just don't know how the story turns out. But all along, it's like God doesn't give up on us. Grace is there. Mercy is there. Plans that we don't know are ready to enfold. Now, little does Naomi know that someday 
she's going to have a little baby in her arms. She's rocking that little baby who's going to be the uh, grandfather of King David. Still less could she imagine that her daughter-in-law, Ruth, a Moabite, remember that, a Moabite maiden, one of the skeletons in Jesus' closet, by the way, along with Rahab, would end up in the line of the Messiah. Her sadness is then suddenly turned into joy. She discovers that where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And yet there's more to come. Now, I'm going to leave this story right here today, and I'm going to contend ourselves with the thought that we serve a God who can take the worst and turn it into the best because that's just plain simple what kind of God it is. We just need to learn to give God time to work because we're all going to go through hard times. He knows what he's doing, even when we don't have a clue.